Welcome once again, Sky fans, to another edition of the Skyhook Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Chris Pennant, a.k.a. Jake Stanley, a.k.a. the Worldwide Web Slinger, a.k.a. Chicagoan until Chicago ends. And we have another Chicagoan until Chicago ends on the show today, standing in for the founder, the originator, James K., uh, my man, Kristen Braswell. You might know him better on Twitter as 808s and Snack Breaks, a.k.a. Snacks for Tweets. And my man is back from his extended exile down in Dallas, and he is joining us on today's show. Kristen, man, welcome. Chris, thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Um, just for the fans who, who haven't seen your work yet, uh, just let them know what your background is. Uh, so really, I started out covering just the Bulls. I'd say maybe like around 2015, seriously. And then the Sky about maybe like around 2019, right before Candace came. And then uh, mm-hmm. that last really rough season. Uh, so really, uh, that's really where it started. As far as like actual words, um, started out with Outlet Pass, where I've been putting most of my W work. Uh, now lately, I've been at Fansided with um, High Post Hoops, um, which has been pretty good so far. So, yeah. Yeah, High Post Hoops is, is great, man. We had uh, uh, an old friend of the show, Nick Nine, Nick Neindorf, who was who was there at High Post Hoops a couple years back until he moved. I think Nick's out in Idaho now, which is wild. I had looked up and I was like, man, he moved, we moved way out. But for sure, man, good to have you on the show. Um, we're going to get to some of the things that uh, have, have gotten us closer over this over this summer, such as, as what you put on your sandwich, which we've got to talk about that, especially we since do. James is not here. We've right. got to talk about the proper way to eat a deli sandwich. But let's get into the meat of things. The series between the Sky and Sun is all tied in Game of Peace after that pretty uh, disconsolate Game 1 where Candace Parker was a supernova and the rest of the Sky were kind of blinked out they were able to get on track in game two, save for a bit of a blip at the end where the bench came in. Uh, you were present for both games. What did you see differently, if anything? Well, in the first game, a lot of the reasons why Connecticut was able to execute the way they played basketball is because of the offensive rebounds. They had about 14. They had nearly double what the Sky had in the first game. And they only had seven. And that really, you know, like uh, Kurt was saying in the first game, that made the series messy. <laughs> he said it again in the game two, uh, in the presser. Uh, they wanted it to. They only had seven. Yet um, they held the sky to 26 points in the paint in the first game, the entire game. But in the second game, they had 26 points in the paint in the first half. So that's really where you saw the sky get back to their backdoor cutting, like Azurae and Candace said in the uh, presser as well. And that's why they were victorious. Connecticut doesn't really have the um, – I wouldn't say the basketball IQ per se, but they don't have the reliable talent to be able to defend that. I mean, honestly, I don't think anyone really has all season when this guy is clicking on their numbers, you know? Yeah, and, and this guy said as much in the post game, right? Like, um, I know there were some differences in the way it was said or just maybe some disagreement even uh, between Azare after game one saying that Connecticut – uh, was a more physical team, and we're not uh, we're not that type of physical team. And and Ali and James Wade kind of disagreed with that point, but everybody agreed that Connecticut wants to slow the game down, kind of gum the game up, and and get it to that methodical pace where they can put the ball on the rim, collect those offensive boards, uh, get a, a few good shots for John Quill Jones, which they did more of in Game Two, and keep it under like 140, 150 points. Uh, to be successful 
And this guy were able to get out, I think, more in transition, but like you said, score more in the paint. Um, I know we, we don't have our guy Steven Gardner on here to run the X, the absolute X's and O's, but yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed that Connecticut was really um, hounding those paint touches, uh, especially in the high post in game one. Uh, did this guy do anything differently that you saw to get those points in the paint? Were they, were they able to attack from the outside in or get more on the fast break, or did they just break down Connecticut's defense? I was just a little bit of both, breaking out the defense and the fact that the Sky were able to execute a perfect entry pass whenever they really needed it to, okay. which they really couldn't get in game one. Yeah. Um, Connecticut took that away from them, and that's really one of the main reasons why they struggled, at least trying to shoot the ball. And, like, the Sky are not necessarily equipped to outshoot anybody. But that's when half of their offense scored inside the paint. When you're able to take that pressure away from them, that's what happened. You go to game two. The exact opposite. Um, it's like a foot literally switched overnight for this team, and I couldn't be more happy the fact that they were able to get back to their game instead of trying to play everybody else's game, which is kind of what has been a story towards the end of the season, and especially after the commissioner stuck in, you know? Yeah, that's a good that's a good point about uh, kind of a, a touchstone of the season, that commissioner's cup game. And we won't, don't want to go back over every single thing that happened in that game because Las yeah. Vegas is Las Vegas. True. But – it did seem like the sky, I didn't know if they had just hit a, a fatigue point in the season where they slowed down after really going um, 110 miles per hour all out the, re- the, the the year preceding, or if it was just, like you said, they were really trying to play to everybody else's style uh, once it got past that game because we, we saw, a, you know, we saw those hiccups against Seattle and Las Vegas to end the season. Mm-hmm. Mostly, um, I would say so. Most of those games came from the fact that one, the Seattle one, you really like we were talking the other day. You can't just stop a team that shoots seventy percent from the field, like right. <laughs> you, can't, you just can't stop that. But those games against Vegas, uh, you, you're just not going to be able to outshoot them, and that's what I saw a majority of the time, especially in the first quarters. Like you're not going to outshoot Kelsey, you're not going to shoot Chelsea. So play your game, and they don't have the size or honestly anyone above 6'3 that can really defend the forwards that the sky have. And when you mix that together, I mean, we're in for one heck of a finals because the sky will make the finals. All right. So we're going to just skip the rest of the show, you know, just go straight to the finals uh, preview. No, I mean, they, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> they still got to win these two games they do. Uh, in Connecticut. And, it, you know, it, as much as the sky have had Connecticut's number, that first game of the series, notwithstanding. This is a team that after the all-star break held every opponent, but two or three under 80 points playing in Uncasville. And they were two in one of those games. Now the easy ones, you know, they lost to Las Vegas. They lost that Mm -hmm. um, really close game to the sky as well, but they also let the New York Liberty. They won the game, but they, I think it was 88 to 83 and the, the Liberty put up 80 plus points. And the Liberty, as we saw in the, in the first series, are a team that likes to play the same way the Sky do. Uh, the Sky does spread the ball around, um, have their their point guard combo guard per se distribute and get out. The one thing that the Liberty do more of than the Sky is get out to the three point line to take a good volume of three point attempts. So there's kind of a blueprint there, you know. Even we we've seen it already. Yeah. But the playoffs being different, there's a blueprint there of what the Sky need to do to be successful. I just, I'm wondering how you feel about Connecticut with 
everything that's been talked about, especially by me on this show, this being their season to prove that they can, they can be a finals contender. They need to make this finals for things to, for, for this core to stay, for them to have any reason to hold on to the free agent that they've got at the end of the year. And frankly, in my estimation, to hold on to Kurt Miller's job as head coach. So yeah. that being said, what do the sky need to do to win presumably both games in Connecticut and close the series out there? And do you see the series coming back to Chicago for game five? Well, for one, Candace made a really good point in the post game uh, of game, the game two. Uh, they asked, I, I believe it was Julia asked about how does the team keep coming back from these games, like games where they've lost and they resound very, like they come back very strong. And Candace said, I would want us to play better after W's. I want us to be able to have this mindset after we win so when we lose. Because it's been a swan song of the, um, of the sky the entire season, how they bounce back and they lose a game. They don't really lose two in a row or whatever. But do you really want to always rely on having to have a bounce back game in a series against, you know, equal opponents? Sometimes maybe if better. I mean, I don't, I don't think you want that. Especially <laughs> like the first game against the Liberty. Okay, yes, we get it. 13 over run in the last three minutes. You come back in the second game. Margin of victory, historic. You close out in game three. Um, Connecticut knocks you off your square in game one. You get back to a game two. Who's going to show up in game three? Is it going to be the Connecticut of game one? Is it going to be the uh, Chicago of game two? I'm leaning towards Chicago of game two, most because I really do believe the fact that that last game, them getting back to the way they play basketball, every starter in that lineup besides, um, I can't remember exactly who it was, but four of them had three-plus assists. In the previous game, only two of them had more than three. And that was Candace and that was Emma with seven and five. So the fact that they were really just able to make those shots, I think that transitions well in Connecticut, especially when Connecticut started Courtney Williams. And she's, I don't know, it's been pretty bad. I think she's six for 22 in the first two games. So, I mean, if she's going to keep shooting, I, I welcome it. <laughs> you can't say anything more. It's... There's not many options behind her, obviously. And and this is and this I feel for Connecticut, just not having Jasmine Thomas, not having that option. I really I wonder again, not having watched them for the majority of the season, I wonder how they would do with Nia Cloudon or Jonai Carrington starting in that spot, uh, to bring defense and just because of the fact that she can get out and run, she's unafraid to take that pull up jump shot from the free throw line in a, in transition. And she defends so well with Alyssa Thomas and Bree Jones on the floor. I wonder if that's an option that, that the Sun have considered at any point. Um, you're in an even series. You played fairly well in, in two games. The second game, I think they got yeah. run out a little bit early. But I wonder if that's a change that needs to be made because Connecticut really needs that punch. And you don't expect um, Dewana Bonner to go for six again. Yeah. But it's plausible that she could have another bad a bad scoring night. She didn't shoot well in game one. She was four for 16. So that comes out to about 22%, if my math is right, that she's shooting for the series. You got to find your offense somewhere. Because at some point, there's going to be another game where this guy are able to get out and really start flowing. That's, just, that's actually a really good point. As far as Courtney Williams, and we know her game style, you know, the mistress of the mid-range. But right now, it's not working. And that's not really what Connecticut needs to get out of this series alive. But they need this tough, gritty defense. That's exactly what DJ Carrington brings. Now, she's not exactly the best shooter on the team by far. 
but what she brings to the table as far as nation in contact and the paint, getting to the rim, that physicality is what Connecticut really needs, at least at the two. Whether, whether she puts that and whether Kurt Miller puts her at, that's really up to him. But I think that's probably one of the better options for them going forward. Um, they don't need the shot making. They need the physicality of the defense, and that's exactly what she brings. Like, I've watched a lot of her games this season, and she's relentless, man. Like, one-on-one, point of attack, she is – She's that girl. Um, I just really hope that they make the decision that's best for them and not what looks best for them. True. And just looking at the stats in game two, uh, Jonah and Odyssey got 18 minutes apiece and Courtney got 19 and a half. So I think there's already that uh, mindset that we're not going to – obviously, Courtney Williams, I don't think you would play her 25, 26 minutes um, if she's not shooting because that's her main calling card is just being, being that microwave. But I think that's a good a good point for Connecticut, a point of emphasis to have Joni and to have Odyssey Sims out there bothering Courtney, uh, bothering Allie, and when they get the opportunity, doing what teams have done most of the season, running Allie through screens in the pick and roll, uh, whether it's from the high or from the elbow side, just really trying to get Allie quickly and forcing the defense to rotate. I saw Connecticut do that a lot in game one. And I again, I wasn't able to be at game two, I'm going to say again so many times in this show. I'm just going to do it. I've just decided. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if they were as successful or if the Sky were able to take that away from them. Anything you saw on that? So I remember you asking Ali that question actually after the first game. Uh-huh. Um, after the second game, I didn't see it as much, but she did score 13 points. I think I believe she went 4 for 11, but what I was looking at the fact that she went 3 for 6 from downtown. Right, which has probably been one of her better shooting performances so far in the playoffs, at least from behind the line. And that's really what the sky needs just to open up the offense. Um, I don't really care about the field goal numbers. I care about what she's doing from the three line. And when she's stroking that thing, man, like it's <laughs> it's it's a beautiful thing to watch. Like it really just opens up everything for everybody. Candace has another pocket to pass to. Like it just opens up so much things for this team. And I just hope that continues, <laughs> especially like the way um, Salute was dishing in the second half, mostly the third quarter. I believe it was like two straight back-to-back plays to Azure, uh entry passes right there. And Connecticut does not have the speed nor the agility to be able to keep up with that. And it's eating them alive, especially in the third quarter, one to the fourth. Um, but one thing I would want to look out for is I know Candace has been playing out of mind lately. But how long do you think that actually continues? Because at some point, like, Emma played great. She had 14 points. She went six for eight. Um, as a Ray Stevens, like, I get that she hasn't exactly been relied on as much since the uh, Liberty Series. But at one point, do you think that we have as a Ray Stevens game in our hands? I don't know. I was thinking about that myself because he didn't have the strongest performance in game one. And even six points in game two off the bench is good, but we've been yeah. used to more. We've been used to her being that primary scorer off the bench. And I expected to see as much against Connecticut, even with them being more physical, them able to rotate more. But there was a particular play where she got a rebound. Um, I believe she had a rebound and Alyssa Thomas just took it away and got a put back and did that and one yell that the Sun are really fond of doing. There was another play where she got a board in tra- that was going in transition and had to dribble out of the backcourt by herself. And Alyssa Thomas was on one side. Uh, Natisha Heidemann had fallen down and she tried to recover and poke the ball away. 
And Z nearly got an, a, an eight-second call called uh, before she got the hit ahead to the front court and found Cobb for uh, a layup. And I think that if, if they're not focusing specifically on Azare as like a number two or three, or say a number three or four person, like, hey, we have to game plan for this person, their bench mm-hmm. is making an effort to take her out of the game as much as they possibly can. And that's important because Z is such a good player off the bench offensively and defensively for the sky. So you really need to have an Azaree Stevens game. And I think you need to have it in game three where she gets double figures and, or at least have her get hot early, a six or seven points in the second quarter when she comes in. And so then that sets Connecticut back on their heels. Obviously, you're thinking of that in terms of the starters having a quality first half and not Z being like the second leading scorer. But you you do need to have an Azaree Stevens game where she gets in the book early, gets that corner three and gets it to drop, um, or is just able to get to the paint and finish. I, I didn't see her finish the way that we were used to in game one. And I thought that was um, a result of Connecticut swarming defense. You need to see Z be able to finish at the rim strongly and confidently the way that we've seen all season. Yeah. That's a really great point. She's been doing it all season, and I don't believe that Connecticut has a forward that is fast enough to keep up with her off the dribble. Like her first step for her size is electric, <laughs> and when she puts her mind to it, she can literally do everything on the court. Three-level score, rebounds, blocks, everything. But as far as the offense, um, one of the main plays I love watching her come off of it is pin downs because when mm-hmm. she's coming off of it, there's no one coming on the other side that's able to stop her because by the time you're, you're anywhere near her, she's already at the rim. I mean, her wingspan is ridiculous. So by the time you're already able to recover, it's too late. It's a trip to the free throw line or made bucket, you know? So um, I, I do think the strategy, though, in game one at least, it wasn't exactly working because she was doing that in game two in the third quarter. It didn't really continue because she only played, what was it, um, 22 minutes. So not necessarily what she's been doing most of the season. She's playing more than 25-plus a lot. Uh, but I think we have Azra Stevens again in game three. One uh, one last thing about game: the differences between game one and game two. Um, uh-huh. Both both coaches made mention of the physical play and the officiating, though with different tones. Uh, Kurt Miller was, uh, he basically acknowledged it, and we saw him during the game, uh, as well as his team, were complaining about a lack of fouls and what was a very physical game. In the second game, the Sky got to the line 22 times out of 63 field goal attempts, which is far and away above their season average in terms of free throw rate. Mm-hmm. And Connecticut uh, took a few more shots, but got to the line six less attempts. Is that something that you're is in the back of your mind to watch, especially if we see Cheryl Flores refereeing another game in this series, which I figure that she will? Honestly, yes. That's been an issue that I was really considering thinking about this last night. The Sky had what was it, nine attempts total mm-hmm. for the free throw line in game one. And then you jump out of nowhere to 22 in the next game. Um, appreciate it, but hey, <laughs> some of those foul calls in game two would have definitely helped in game one, especially <laughs> considering the Sky were down, what was it, five points and almost like 30 seconds to go with the game? They yeah. were, it, was, um, it, was, it was a low scoring, um, it was a low deficit, at least towards the end of the fourth quarter, that could have recovered. And some of those fouls would have helped. But um, that would definitely be something I'm looking out for, especially going into game three in Connecticut. Um, I'm just wondering if the consistency is going to continue because it's been very inconsistent. 
uh, because that's it's a cornerstone of James Wade. If the Sky lose and they don't get up to the line a lot, he's going to make mention of the officiating. But he talked about Kalia Copper driving to the rim and not getting calls in game one. She only went to the line once in game two. Everybody except Julie and Candace went to the line, I believe, uh, once. I think Allie, Allie had three free throw attempts, so she had an and one in there somewhere. Uh, but Candace had seven FTAs. Everybody else had, you know, one or two times where they went to the line. So it was a spread of Sky players getting shooting fouls called or just the Sky getting, being able to get into the bonus. And I think that's important too. Uh, to get a team like Connecticut kind of rocking back on their heels. Natisha Heidemann in particular had four fouls uh, to go along with her 14 points, really efficient game. Uh, I, I wonder if it will, how it will be if the Sky win game three or, or just no matter what happens, where we see uh, that officiating crew that we saw in game one or a mix of it. And we just got to know if you see Cheryl Flores that there's probably going to be a lot, of, a lot more things like, oh, which does uh, accentuate Connecticut's style of play. It does. Like Curtis has been saying since the series started, we have to be messy. We have to we have to mess it up because that's the only way we're even winning against this team. And going back to Connecticut, I hope that that doesn't necessarily happen because the way that they've been playing basketball is the way they've been playing the entire season. It just hasn't really won in any games against us. But the fact that they literally did the way they did in game one and it was allowed because there were a, a couple of plays that I'm thinking, hey, that could have been a foul. I mean, I'm no rough. I'm no basketball coach, but hey, when I see Kyle get thrown down to the court 40 million times in one game, <laughs> like, you sound like I'm, a coach feeling, I'm feeling like coach now, right? Hey, <laughs> give me a foul. Um, but honestly, it's not even really just Kyle because she was the only Scott player that went to the line multiple times in game two, game one, she had four attempts. She was the only one that had more than three. Yeah. So I hope it doesn't continue. But like you said, with Cheryl Flores, you never know. But the fact that that is even a connotation with her name is like, hey, this is not a good thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing, man. It's not. Uh, I know I said the last thing about game one, game two differences, but uh, yeah. John Quill Jones got way more touches in game two and responded. Really quality game, uh, 23 points and seven, seven boards uh, on 17 shots and hit two or four threes. Uh, between her and Natisha Heidemann, they accounted for just under half of the Suns' offense. Where does the series turn in that respect? Because there's a school of thought where you let your MVP candidate get get their touches and just kind of work as hard as you can and try to shut down everybody else. But John Quill Jones did not get that mu- that many opportunities in game one and the Sun ended up winning. So if you're the Sky, where do you put your emphasis outside of just total team defense? Where and how do you play for the Sun attacking, whether is it through John Quill Jones? Are they going to try and keep getting her opportunities in isolation? Or are they going to try and keep running things through Alyssa Thomas uh, and get out on fast break? Like, if you're the Sky, since we're, we're putting our coach hats on, yeah. where do you focus your energy? I'll focus my energy on one, Emma Meesman. I know, hey, don't uh, get me wrong. I know John Quill Jones shot the 58% from the field, 10 for 17, had a great game. And, but when Emma was on her, it's like white on rice. Ooh. That was probably one of the better performances, defensive performances at least, I've seen from Emma entire season. Now, this is why I'm kind of upset that the W doesn't have tracking data, because if they did, I'd be able to tell you exactly what the matchups were 
And I'm pretty sure it wasn't pretty when Emma was on her. Because every time that I saw Emma on her, you know what, the next time I watch the Sky game, or God forbid they come back to Chicago for game five, I'm going to get some beans. And I'm going to count out every single time Emma is guarding John Cole Jones. That's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, take, but, take it all the way back, how we count. <laughs> exactly, right? But the times that I did see Emma messed up, uh, matched up with John Quill, um, she was making her work for it. And a lot of those times, it was just bad finishes or she just wasn't making those shots. But John Quill was getting everything that she had. And Emma was giving her everything that she had. And it just wasn't working for it. Like I said, 10 for 17, I get it. That's a pretty good mark. But when Emma was on her, she she just wasn't John Paul Jones. So I would like to see that continue mostly because Connecticut went to her a lot in those first two quarters of the game too. But then in kind of after the halftime, they were kind of going to do back to AT, back to uh, Brianna. And that worked for a little bit until the Sky to get back to their backdoor cutting and everything that's really worked for them. Passing, just executing, moving. Like the Sky, <laughs> no one stands anywhere. Everyone is always shuffling. Everyone's moving. And Connecticut, they, don't, they just can't do it, man. I, I don't know if it's one of its age or just the fact that they don't have that many players that are that have the agility. Again, when you're constantly moving, you get to work on both sides of the court, that's tiring them out. Like, if you, you were there for game one. Connecticut was gassed in the, first, uh, in the fourth quarter. I'm not sure how they kept – they let on, honestly. Same thing happened in game two. Maybe it's different at home in game three, but – I don't think it changes. I think they the sky stick to what's best for them. They have what it takes. Stephen Gardner talked about that uh, prior to Game One, how the sun, how the sky are so efficient and effective, moving with and without the ball. He compared them uh, to the Spurs of the early, like the late two thousands, early twenty tens in that respect, and uh, added to that fact that James Wade had been in that system in his time with the Silver Stars. Mm-hmm. Game three coming up Sunday afternoon for sure is going to be a dandy. Uh, make sure you watch it. Make sure you get the time right. I believe it's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, so 12 Central. Check the time. I'm not as as smart as that's, I used to. That's the to right be. time. Okay, cool. Thank you. I was like, <laughs> yeah, is it, is, it was like, there's no way they're starting 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, right? Even if we're and getting they- the football season. <laughs> Yeah, hey, yeah. man, I, I've been on this show talking about Camp Day all year long. If anybody's still out there hating on Camp Day, come see me. That's all I'm going to say. Come see me, and we'll talk. <laughs> like, every single time this season, why is there a game on 11? I'm like, do you not hear the thousands of children screaming? Like, what do you think is happening? It's Camp Day. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same thing every year. Like, y'all, you should know <laughs> what happens by now. And, and yeah. even if you're like, oh, I'm tired of these 11 o'clock games. Like, man, wake up. Wake up. Get you some, get you some breakfast. It's like Enjoy every it. year when Chicago is here, Jets flying over Chicago. It's like, come on, you know, it's the Aaron Water Show. It's not World War Three, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a rite of passage every summer, man. Like, and, like, oh crap! Oh my God, I can't believe it's happening again. Yes, believe it, believe it. You know what country we live in? Come on, come on, man. You already know. Well, that breakfast mention is going to lead us into our uh, our favorite segment, and today we are going with "Do You Agree with Kalia," where we take a Kalia Copper tweet. And discuss whether we agree or not with Kalia. Um, this one's a bit of, of a different one. I think we've had some like this before, where it's not necessarily do we agree with this tweet. Uh, it might be like what um, uh, just a question branched off of that. So there were a few good ones uh, that Kaz had over the last couple of weeks, but this one was just from yesterday evening. For some reason, <laughs> at six forty-five p.m., Kaz tweeted. I want some grits. 
And I just look at the I just look at the time like, man, that's a wild time to be craving grits. Just grits. <laughs> with, with a period at the end to let you know. Oh yeah, like it's serious. Like we're gonna go get some. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's because she had a pre she pregame to Denny's, I think the day before, and she had yep. the whole grand plate laid out, pancakes, eggs, bacon, all that, but she she was craving grits. So my question <laughs> to you first, um, would you also be not necessarily would you be craving grits at, at 645? Do you like grits? Because I know some people who don't. My partner, my former roommate, was very adamant in her distaste for grits. And then if the answer is yes, how do you take them? which is the most important question. Okay. So, yes, I do like grits. Okay. Um, growing up, Chicago, it was either grits and bacon and toast in the morning before school, or you had to use some oatmeal. And my grandmother, uh, love her, you know, but, hey, only so much maple brown sugar I can take. Yeah, man. <laughs> Burned me out, man. You got too big. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, I do love grits. This might be controversial, but sugar belongs in grits. I'm sorry. Oh. It does. It belongs in grits. Get your little little splash of butter, a couple of dashes of pepper, and you got yourself a good day. Like, I'm not sure why people hate sugar and grits. Why is that? I, I've never tried it. I will say this. I have not tried it. And there's the adage of you, you've got to try it before you can definitively say that you don't like it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a sweets person in general. Like, yeah. I I like a I'll get a Butterfinger like every couple of months, and I've just I've tried to lay off of you know processed sugar because Dr. Umar says no, I'm not gonna go Tried to lay off processed sugar in general. Tried, yeah. to, tried to cut it out of my diet. I got a I got a case of of cokes in the in the fridge, but that's been my my main concession to it. But I, I grew up eating it with salt and butter, butter and salt, salt and butter, and like you said, putting bacon in it. Um, maybe it's like every so often some hot sauce, just because. And so when I first heard it, people was like, yo, you put sugar in your grits and you put butter and sugar and this and that. And I was like, what are y'all talking about? Yeah. Why would you want this to be sweet? And it was like, my I think my thought was sugar is for oatmeal, salt is for grits, like like we you opened up with. Shout out to all my Jamaican brothers and sisters. Uh, um, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> listen, I love grits, but the first time I had some real authentic porridge, I, kn- I knew where my heart was, you know? Mm, yeah, I can Luckily, see that. I, yeah, it's oh, I don't know how to explain it. It's perfect. If you get someone that knows how to make it correctly, it is probably one of the better foods I have ever had. Um people I, I don't get the grit slander. I really don't. I don't get it. I, I think I really think it's just something that you you kind of come up with and you um you, you kind of in, in, ingrained into it. Uh, even my, my my one friend doesn't like comedy at all. And I was like, nah, man, I I don't get that. I think there's 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 reasons behind it either. It's something that you just you grow up with and you get too much of and you have like yeah. it, it's associated with the context and you're like, nah, you know, I remember it because of this, so I don't want to eat it again. Mm-hmm. Or it's just something that you try once and you're like, eh, I don't really like it. But it's not, it's never been a texture thing for me for grits. Even if I made them with too much water, I was like, okay, just 
you got to deal with it. It's, it's not that great. Next time will be better. But I will always eat it if I have a choice. Put some, mix some eggs in with that. Um, grits, eggs, bacon, and orange juice is like perfect Saturday morning. All right, let's go out and do something after this. Let's let's like let's do let's eat this and then let's clean the house. <laughs> yeah, it's literally one of those foods that you can add with anything, and it's not too heavy at all. You know, it's perfect consistency. But um, as much as I love grits, though, I'm I'm just not eating it alone. I, I can't like I, I would love to ask Kai if she's in the uh, post game after for game three. So the grits tweet was the grits alone <laughs> or was it grits with something? Because we're just making grits, just eating random grits at six forty five p.m. I mean, I've got some questions. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> got some questions. Sometimes you get those cravings, man. You just you just get those cravings that they come out of nowhere, and you're like, man, I really want that right now, and I just got to deal with it. I guess I don't. <laughs> I would be more interested if she actually went out and got the grits after that. <laughs> Seriously, know? like I know you can't eat shellfish, um, but listen, some shrimp and some grits, or some catfish and grits. That's that's. Weight of my heart, man. <laughs> and make it correctly. You know where I like it from? Listen, you can have the checkbook. I don't care. Oh, I'll bang with some catfish for real. Man. It's the it's the bottom it's the bottom feeder. I I don't care. Don't care. You guys eat lobster and shrimp, you're not supposed to eat that. <laughs> yeah, lobster. Yeah, man. Fun, fun fact for everybody. Lobster used to be like prisoners' food, they used to they used to give that to the people in the brig on the boat. They would give them lobster because that was that was the roaches of the sea. Now what? Y'all still fuck with lobster like that? I didn't know that. Really? Uh, yeah, it's it's true. I remember reading that. I was like, wow. I I had to look into it because I was like, this. I don't know. That sounds. That doesn't seem congruent with what I've known. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. I guess uh, I guess it's true. But yeah, anybody who tells you that catfish is a trash fish is, is uh, I never say this. Anybody who tells you that catfish is a trash fish is a cop. <laughs> it's like, you do know you can clean fish, right? Like, I've never heard of someone dying from eating catfish. Maybe right? a bone going to... <laughs> right. But like, like you, you, I, when people tell me that, it's like, I'm, I'm guessing you don't clean your fish before you make it, right? You just... Throw it in the cornmeal and call it a day. No, you wash it. <laughs> That's like true. people make greens. Do you wash your greens? I would hope so. It's a leaf. <laughs> you, you know, this is interesting because I see people talking about, yo, we got to wash off our chicken, uh, wash off the meat before you, you work with it. And I think that was something that I came up with. I can't quite remember. Greens is like, okay, I get that. You There's going to be some dirt on it. There's going to be some pesticide on it somewhere. So you run that through the water you really get your hands on it and rub that off. Get that dirt off. Try to get yep. that DDT off. They don't use DDT anymore, but I had to say it. I don't know any other pesticides. <laughs> but get as much as you can off of that. With with meat, I'm like, I'm about to put this in something really hot that should burn these germs away anyway. So <laughs> I've never, at least not since I've been an adult on my own, I've never been the guy that's like, yo, I'm going to wash this this chicken breast off before I cook it. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see the responses I get on that. Skytown, you always know, we'll give you the, the email address at the end. But 
Here's our question for you for next week. Outside of the basketball stuff, how do you prepare your meat? Do you wash it? Do you not wash it? What do you do with your food? What's your controversial food preparation opinions? And don't say um, something like, I eat all of this undercooked because we'll block you. Easy, just like that. Two steps, boom, done. Yeah. If you say you eat something undercooked deliberately, we're going to block you. That's, that's not safe. Don't I've never that. understood the whole washing of meat before you cook it because anything over 160 degrees, the bacteria is dead. Right, it's right. dead. There's no, there's no, it's not going to get you. There's not, it's, it's gone. That's only what the heat is for. Um, <laughs> like people go and wash off steaks and stuff. I'm just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I don't understand. <laughs> that's, I don't get it. That's crazy. <laughs> Like the only reason why you have to wash greens, there's two reasons why. One, it's a leaf, and two, you're literally cooking it in water. So eventually, if there's still dirt on those on the greens, it's gonna show up in your food. You know? No doubt. Yeah. So that's why you was like, I need to get that off. But as as we have agreed, with with meat is different. It is. It definitely is. Especially Um, people everyone's got their own opinions. Uh, real quick, I want to go into um, any thoughts that you have on the other series across the brackets, Seattle versus Las Vegas, as the scene shifts to Seattle for games three and four. Uh, it's another Donnie Brooks series um, with the lower-seeded team winning game one and Las Vegas coming uh, coming through and winning game two. Both of those games were close, uh, pretty much as the Sky series, uh, Sky Sun series has been, uh, notwithstanding really the fourth quarter in game two for the Sky and the Sun. But it looks like the battle that we anticipated. Uh, any thoughts on game three for that one? Who do you think is going to win? Uh, well, after Asia's performance in game one, like we, we both know that wasn't going to continue, right? right <laughs> you had eight right. points, like three for ten. Like, that wasn't going to continue. And even then, your best player goes three for ten, and you only lose by three. The Las Vegas defense is so true. They, they held everybody down except Jewel Lloyd, and that – I think Seattle really needs those paramount Jewel Lloyd performances, period, to win this series. Not just to have a chance to win the series. To win the series, yeah. they're going to need Jewel Lloyd going off consistently. And so I, I really hope we see that. Not just because uh, not just because I'm an Aces hater, because I am. I'll admit it. I'm an Aces hater. I can appreciate what they do. I like Becky, but I still got those old feelings from, from Bill Lambeer days. I'm an Aces hater. I'll be straight up about it. But I, I, for for Seattle to win, they need Jewel Lloyd to be putting up those 20-point performances every game. I think you're going to get something quality from Brianna Stewart pretty much every time. Um, she'll have a bad game like Asia had because those are the two run – far and away, those are the two MVP candidates for me, whole season long. Yeah. But every once in a while, the defense is going to take them you know, out of their game or they're just going to lay an egg like Asia did in game one. So you might have a Brianna Stewart bad game in game three or four. But Seattle absolutely needs Jewel to get to get hot and stay hot. Uh, I think that's what I'm really looking out for because, man, it's, it's fun when Miss Lloyd tweets. It's fun to see the Wendell and Lloyd tweets. So Brianna Stewart's been consistent all season. Uh, she's been pretty mainstay. The COVID and everything, even beginning of the season, where Seattle was pretty bad. Um, but, but we know that. We know Brianna Stewart's going to show. She's been an MVP candidate pretty much the entire season as well. But – who else is going to show up? We know it's not going to be Sue. I mean, they told <laughs> the 12 assists, no turnovers, great. But they barely won, you know? Yeah. They barely won again. 
24 points, 9 for 17. Tina Charles showed up, 13 points. Drew Lloyd had 26. But you go over the game, too, and it was the exact opposite. Brianna Stewart showed up, 32. Tina Charles showed up, 17. And that was it. That's not going to work to beat the Aces. It's just not. Especially when you know Aces is going to come back, 33 points, 12 for 18. Um, Kelsey showed up. Chelsea Grace. It was Chelsea Grace, 19-7-7. and I mean, what else could you really say? Um, she hit most of her shots, 61% for field. She went three for five from the three-point line. Um, what I think is really the answer for Seattle isn't even really offense. I believe it's defense with Gabby Williams. Um, yeah. she's, she's literally a Swiss knife. She can do it all. She can defend. She can score. She can shoot. Um, she can initiate an offense. Uh, like She literally does everything for that team. And the fact that they don't have her. They're missing it, and you can see it in the game every single time they play, especially going into the fourth quarter. They just don't look confident. And it's weird, right, because I think even even I, as a, as a real Gabby Williams fan, having watched her, her starter career in Chicago, there was always the, the sentiment of when is Gabby Williams going to really break out and become that dynamic player that we saw uh, in spurts at Connecticut that mm-hmm. uh, Connecticut saw when she was coming out of high school. And that's the Gabby Williams that that we saw overseas with Sopron, where she was able to to lead that team, drive and finish at the rim, hit from outside. She yep. was pretty. She was pretty much the unquestioned shit starter of that team. She got everything going. You know, she doesn't necessarily have to do that on a team with Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd for sure. Yeah. But that that is, I think it's it's telling that that Seattle needs um, that Seattle needs Gabby Williams not just as a primary point of attack defender, but also somebody who can get you nine or 10 a game and help control the boards and, and get the fast breaks going. So I don't, is she, is she going to be back for game three for sure or no? I don't, I'm actually looking right now. Um, she was ruled out for game two. I believe, I don't I'm not seeing any updates as far as uh, whether she's going to be back or if she's even questionable. Um, I don't. I don't see Seattle winning this series without her. Yeah, and and I agree. I really do agree. I I think Gabby is a key. Uh, for what we mentioned, or for for what we all know her for, just defense. She can stand up to those um, post defender to those post players as best as best as anybody in the league for her size and just the, you know her size and strength, ability to rotate. Um, go out to the perimeter, come back and help dig down on offense, on the help side, what have you, mm-hmm. and then still hit a shot um, or two when it's needed, get to the free throw line. Man, yeah, I, I, I want to see Seattle take it to game five, at least yeah. for selfish reasons. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really want to see it because those are two quality basketball teams. We're seeing the last run of Sue Bird. And you want to see those two teams, kind of the, the old lion and the new lion, really go at each other and and see who's going to come out of it. You know, is the old line going to have one more finals run left in them or is the new line finally going to get to that point where they can claim the crown? And that's, that's so cool for WNBA fans to be able to see. This is, this is not saying that Brianna Stewart, the old line, you know, that's very much the Sue Bird kind of part of it. Right. But Tina Charles is on that squad. She's been in this league for 10, 10 plus years now. Yep. So you've got that on one side. You have that tangible age experience and uh, championship pedigree with Sue and that Seattle franchise. And on the other side, you have this 
Las Vegas, um, San Antonio, Utah franchise that's still looking for its first chip with uh, a coach who was never able to win one with uh, this team that's had the chances. Man, I want to see that series go five just because it will be fucking dope. Seriously. It would be. Um, and mostly for the fact that Gabby's been, when relied on, pretty consistent in Noel Quinn's system. Seattle switches everything. Yeah. And, like, they've been one of the most efficient teams to do so the entire season with that system. And the fact that they don't have her, you notice it. You, you just notice it. The fact that Kelsey, Chelsea can go off the way they do, which they didn't do in game one. Not that she wasn't there, but she wasn't. But the fact that that's happening, you, you can't. With her on the floor, that doesn't happen. And I'm not saying she's going to limit them, but just enough to throw them off to the square to the point to where Asia's still going to be Asia. But if you can knock off one of those three-headed horse women, you're a good job. But without her, it's just too much firepower on the other side. It's just too much. That's going to bring us to the end of the skyhook for sure. Uh, Kristen Braswell, man, I want to thank you for coming on, subbing in for, for today's show. Appreciate having you on. Let the people know where they can find you and your work. You can find me on Twitter at Snacks4Tweets. Uh, like, leave the snacks that you eat, the number four, and then tweets. Uh, name on there is 808s and Snack Breaks. I'm pretty sure I'm only the person on Twitter with the name, something of that nature. So, yes, <laughs> that, that is me where you can find me. Uh, words pretty much everywhere. Uh, and some more places coming soon. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you know where to find us on Twitter at the Skyhook Pod. Uh, email us at the Skyhook Mailbag at gmail.com. Again, that's the Skyhook Mailbag at gmail.com. Again, let us know your, your, your food preparation ideology. We want to hear about it. Again, if you eat undercooked food, just unfollow us on Twitter now. We, we can't have that. We can't have that in the Skyhook periphery. We really can't. Uh, otherwise, I am at Quandary Kitten. That's K-W-A-N-D-A-R-Y Kitten on Twitter. And the originator, founder, often imitated, never quite duplicated James K is at James underscore M underscore K-A-Y. This has been the Skyhook Podcast. Game three tomorrow afternoon on ABC at noon central time. Until then, folks, be good, do great things, and keep your head above the clouds. Thank you.